Well, good morning, Central. Oh, it is good to see you. Welcome here for our annual Youth Sunday service. And uh, if you don't know who I am, my name's John. Uh, and I have the great privilege of being the youth pastor here at the church where together uh, with an amazing team of youth directors and dedicated adult volunteers, we get the privilege of hanging out with around 200 students, uh, middle school, high school students per week across our campuses. Uh, and our students, I mean, they come from all different backgrounds uh, and walks of life and faith. And as a ministry, we have one clear mission which is that we exist to lead youth to be authentic followers of Jesus. You see, uh, the mission of reaching young people with the hope of Christ is what drives us as a ministry. It's the reason why in a given year uh, that we run close to 200 different events that impact the life and the faith of students, uh, including things like small groups, house parties, gathering worship nights, outreach parties, parenting equipping nights, missions trips, uh, hanging out with a kid one-on-one. We do so many different things, um, and it is such an amazing thing to be a part of a church uh, that loves and supports youth ministry. And I get the uh, great privilege of being the youth pastor, but I also had the great privilege of being a student uh, at Central. Uh, that's, that was my youth group, uh, and it's because of this church that I'm a youth pastor today. So I'm so thankful uh, for, uh, for the church. Well, before we spend our morning together uh, looking at what it means to intentionally pass on faith to the next generation, I want to start our time off together by sharing with you uh, a hard reflection on the current state of adolescent uh, faith in North America. Now, we all know uh, that being a teenager is extremely difficult. Uh, Students today are not only going through massive biological, social, and emotional changes, but they're wrestling with some of the biggest questions about identity and belonging and purpose. And while our students are connected more than ever before, uh, they're also internalizing deep hurt and pain that's manifesting itself in high rates of anxiety and depression. And to add, uh, uh, you know, on top of that is the fact that our society is very post-Christian, where our culture is constantly telling our students that things like faith, things like attending church or having a, 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 a religious belief system isn't important. And what we're seeing in youth ministry across Canada and what we're seeing in North America is that we're seeing uh, is that after high school, more students and young adults um, than ever before are walking away from their faith and abandoning their church and their faith. And this is not a a new problem. It was actually in in 1797 uh, that William Wilberforce, who was a member of uh, the British Parliament, who's known for uh, uh, stopping um, a slave trade uh, in in England, uh, this is what he wrote. He had these observations in 1797, and he said this. He said, think about what happens to many young people who are raised with all the benefits of prosperous parents who are cultural Christians themselves, And as children, they are taken to church where they hear the parts of the Christian message that their particular church embraces. And although it is rare in our times, uh, maybe they even receive some measure of religious instruction at home. And eventually, they leave home, they launch out into this world. Some go to work, some go to college. They face temptations they've not faced before, and they give in to them. Their lives might get out of control with the use of alcohol, and they might give in to sexual indulgence. At the least, they never read their Bible or make any attempt to develop a spiritual life. Most don't even attempt to take what knowledge is at their disposal and form their own beliefs and convictions. They don't learn to think. And so this is not a new problem. 
But I want to let you know, church, that this is a growing and alarming uh, concern. We should have a, a, a concern here. Recently, uh, numerous studies have been released by various Christian organizations, including the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, uh, BARNA, which is a research uh, uh, organization down in the States that looks at faith. And what they're seeing is that um, 35 to 42 million young people will be walking away from faith and the Protestant church by the year 2050, meaning that this is one of the most important times and seasons in the life of the church. And these studies, they list various factors that contribute to young people deconstructing and abandoning their faith. And while this exodus is very complex, it is important to realize that there's not just one single issue that's at hand here. Students are leaving for many different reasons, and these include some of the following. One is that we haven't prepared kids to answer hard questions that they have about life and faith, and oftentimes they're finding that the church is answering questions that they're not asking while their discussions around things like justice and uh, sexual ethics, mental health, are being met with a resounding silence. Uh, Secondly, students uh, are leaving the church because they've seen members or leaders in the church be hypocritical and judgmental. Students are leaving the church because, and faith because they disagree with the church's stance on political and social issues. They're leaving because young people have, have taken notice of the faith of their parents and those around them, and, and they, they, they see that their actions don't line up with what, they, what they're teaching. And lastly, that deep connections are not being formed in the church uh, between peers and caring adults. But, but however, there, there is a great thing here because there has been so many studies that have been released and, and it is this, is that having an accurate picture of what's happening to the faith of a generation is actually this unmitigated gift to those of us uh, who, who, who desire to help the faith of adolescents grow. You see, the faith of future generations will surely be brighter if we take serious, uh, the, 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 seriously uh, the discoveries of these studies. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to spend some time looking at Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8, which is this historical psalm that reminds us of the role that we have as parents, as a faith community, to learn from the past and to engage the future generation with our own stories of salvation. And so I want to invite you to stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. And it's on the screen if you don't have a Bible. If you need a Bible, come talk to us or go to the welcome desk. We've got some there for you. But this is what it says in Psalm 78, verse 1 to 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. And the wonders that he has done, he established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You may be seated. You know, as I read this text over and over again, I think there's, there's three things that our text tells us. And I want to look at the first one, and it is this is that passing on faith requires a clear and concise end goal. 
You see, our passage this morning challenges us to effectively pass on a faith that is deeper in dependency, deeper in loyalty and love for the Lord. And I want you for a moment to imagine if you were to hire a construction company and you told them to build you a building, but you didn't give them the blueprint or you didn't discuss the building's purpose. Well, it's safe to say that you would be disappointed with the outcome of this project, right? Because what we know is that vague ideas lead to disappointing results. It would be the same if our goal was just to keep um, our kids engaged in the church through adulthood. If that's just our goal, I think we're going to be disappointed with the results, If we don't have a specific plan of how to disciple them, to challenge them, to keep them accountable, to keep them connected in the church, we will be disappointed with what happens in the next 25 years. A.W. Tozer uh, has this wonderful quote about what a true disciple of Jesus is, and he says this, he, the Christian, does not consider Christianity a part-time commitment, but rather he has become a Christian in all parts of his life. He has reached the point where there is no turning back. You see, this is exactly what we are shooting for as a youth ministry, that teenagers would form lifelong faith as they grow in their understanding and love for God. And it's in today's scripture that the author compares uh, his end goal to the past struggles of the nation of Israel keeping their own faith. You see, the Bible is composed of many different stories, which, which are all part of this grand narrative. There is a faithful God working to reconcile his rebellious creation back to him. And the story is full of faith and faithlessness, salvation and damnation, obedience and rebellion. The author of Psalm 73 draws attention to the past faithlessness of God's people. And he says, this is not how it should be. This is not what we are shooting for as a faith community. And so what we have as as the church is we have opportunities to learn from their mistakes. And, And what our author does is he actually gives us four benchmark guides that help us remember what it is to follow God and what we are shooting for as a as a church. And so as we look at our text, I want you to notice these themes of knowing and hoping and remembering and obeying. First of all, in verse six, we are told that we want the next generation to know God and his word. And you see, there is a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Head knowledge knows about God, can answer the Sunday school question, which, and the answer at a Sunday school is always, it's always Jesus, right? And it gives God credit at award shows because that's the thing to do. But on the other hand, there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, Heart knowledge of God and his word involves having this deep, intimate relationship with him, where you spend time daily in his word and in prayer, where everything you do revolves around your desire to know Jesus and to follow him. And it's in in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus spoke about what it means to know God in this way. And this is what Jesus says. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Eternal life only comes from knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, knowledge of God comes from walking through life with him, thinking of him, talking to him, worshiping him. Knowledge goes far beyond understanding a a concept of truth, but it applies that, that truth personally in the aspects of life. 
And secondly, the benchmark guide is, is one of hope. We want this next generation to place their hope. And if you read NIV, ESV, one will say hope, one will say trust, but it's saying the same thing. To put your hope in him. He is the only hope and light in the midst of despair. And it's in Proverbs 3 that we are instructed to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. Not just a part of it, but all of our hearts. And lean not on our own understanding. You see, there's many times in Israel's history where where they place their trust in people or things other than the one true God. To trust God means to have a firm belief in the reliability, in the truth, and the strength of God and his promises. It is unwavering. See, trusting God is an essential element of true and saving faith. To trust God means to believe in him without a doubt that what he says about himself, about the world that we live in, about who we are as broken, sinful people who are yet beloved beings is true. You see, God longs to redeem and to call us sons and daughters because he is our hope. He loves us. He wants to put, uh, for us to put our trust in him, to rely on him, to hold true to the promises of Scripture of who he is and what he said, that he was going to be our God and we are going to be his people. Thirdly, we're told that we want the next generation to remember Listen to our text again. It says this, I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. Now, one of the things that we know about mankind, what I know about myself, is that I'm actually quite weak and I'm very forgetful of learning from past mistakes. You see, part of passing on faith is remembering the collective history that's been passed down to us from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And we have to learn from that, and we have to respond accordingly to the past that's been passed down to us. And what our author is saying is this, remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you. Remember your shortcomings, the things that, you know, you had to learn hard lessons. You see, there's plenty of examples in the Bible where where people are called to remember Primarily to remember the Exodus, right? This moment where God delivers his people from Egyptian captivity through signs and wonders and power greater than any other power on earth. Because in remembering the past, we are equipped to deal with the present because there is this great reality and it is this, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this not only applies to the Bible, but it also applies to our own stories and testimonies of salvation. The God that we read about in the Bible is the God who is working in our hearts, the Holy Spirit who is moving amongst us and changing our lives, and we get to pass that on, and we get to remember you know, the, the hard mistakes we had to learn, and we embrace and we hold true to the gospel. Lastly, our author calls the Israelites to obey And to obey God is to keep his commandments. And this is more than just obeying a list of rules out of religious obligation or keeping his commands, right? But it it implies hearing and trusting and submitting and surrendering to God and his word. And countless times, the nation of Israel did not obey God. For instance, Moses leaves the Israelites for a few days. He meets with God on this mountain. And when he returns to God's people, they had created a golden calf and they're following and worshiping this idol. 
Right now, there's so many things that can become our golden calves for us. It could be work, it could be sports, it could be that new house, our image on social media, uh, social media all the activities that we're involved in. They can distract us from God and how he asks us to live. Now, one of the reasons why young people are leaving the church is because many Christians have unintentionally spent more time teaching their kids to be good rather than teaching them what it means to obey out of love for God. You see, this idea of being good is called moralistic therapeutic deism, which holds the core belief that that God is the creator of all things and that God ultimately wants people to be good, nice and fair with each other, and that good people go to heaven when they die. But there is a big difference between moralistic therapeutic deism and this word obey. Obeying God wholeheartedly means doing as God has commanded, enthusiastically, totally, and 100%. Christian obedience is the act of submitting to and obeying the commands of God, who is the highest authority, creator, and father of mankind. Obedience to God is the expression of our love for him. It is a way that we worship him, and it is a way that we know him and become close to him as we abide in him and listen to him and follow him and obey him. And so what our text is saying is that our goal, right, let's go back to this goal, our goal ought to be passing on a faith to the next generation that is actually deeper and wider and more dependent on Jesus than our own. And sometimes we lose focus on what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to pass on faith. We, we sometimes think that if we can, you know, we can get our kids to pray this prayer to Jesus, you know, the prayer of salvation at four years old, then they're good. We think that if they go to Sunday school or if they go to youth group and they attend regularly, that they're going to learn and that they're good, Right? Since they've done these things, they must have a solid faith in Jesus. But faith in Christ is more than just a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's more than attending events. It's about embracing the intimate heart knowledge of God to, to uh, the, the, the love for and the hope in him, which leads to this obedience. One of my profs, I, I recently went back and worked on my master's, and one of my profs, uh, his name's Chap Clark, and he wrote a book called Adoptive Church, and this is what he wrote about this goal that we should have. He says this, our goal then is not a destination that says, look, there's a mature disciple. It is rather a movement and a trajectory towards continual growth. Growth is organic and it's constant. And we will grow either in one direction towards deepening trust and faith or in another towards greater self-focus and reliance. To disciple someone means to help them grow the deep trust in Christ that will last a lifetime. It's about creating an environment where that growth can happen in the context of God's household with other siblings in Christ on that very same journey. This is biblical discipleship. The end goal is that we continue walking. It's never that we've got there, right? We need to know what our end goal is as we think about kids' ministry and youth ministry and young adults, as we think about the scope of the church, and we all have a part to play in that. And that's what leads us to our second point, is that passing on faith requires a holistic community approach. 
You see, when I was a teenager uh, at Central, I had a pretty huge crisis of faith where for a season, I walked away from faith and I stopped in being involved in church and youth group. And it was a little bit of a shocker to some because I was, I was the good Christian kid, right? I was pretty naive, uh, but I, you know, I went to church and I read my Bible and, and I had like five WWJD bracelets and you know, I, I attended youth, I, I helped in worship ministry, I spent my summers working at camp, but it was in grade 10 where my faith was really shaken to the core. One of my friends passed away in a car accident, and shortly after, uh, a cousin of mine died in a really horrific motorcycle accident. And it was in the middle of this pain and in this confusion that I began to ask a lot of questions about God and why bad things happen to good people. Why God would allow something so horrible to happen. And so I did what many young people do when crises happen. I started to question, which led to me stopping, you know, attending church. And I, I simply lived my life void of God. And I didn't want to disappoint my parents, so I would go to A&W. And, and they, when they would say, hey, how was church? I'd be like, oh, it was great, right? I didn't want them to know because somehow I, I just struggled with this because I knew that I, I should be following Jesus, but I didn't. And so I was just confused. And, um, and, and here's the thing that made the biggest difference in my life. Those around me never gave up on me. When I stopped attending youth group, it was my youth pastor, Mike Froze, who phoned me and checked in on me. It was my youth leader, Mike Wilson, who made every effort to connect with me. And I remember one day sitting with my youth leader and him giving me this leather-bound NIV study Bible. And he goes, this is my own Bible. And you're searching for these answers. And, and your hope is found in these pages. And I was like, whatever, I've read the Bible before. Right? But he wanted me to turn to God's word and didn't give up on that. He would, he would contact me or send me a, a, a message on MSN Messenger because that was the only social media platform. And he would say, hey, I've got a verse for you today. Right? My, my parents, you know, they, they knew I was hurting and struggling and they, they patiently reminded me of God's goodness. And to top it all off, I had my grandmother pray for me, my Omi. And that was a really special thing. You see, folks, my faith would not be what it is today if it wasn't for this massive community of God's people in my life. It included everyone who had ever cared for me. Every single one of them played this important, radical part in the, the, the reformation and the solidification of my faith. And, and although, um, as I thought about my experiences walking away from Jesus, I, I, I just kept thinking of what it says in Psalm 78. And I want to read this again to you, and I want you to listen to this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in the parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children and glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. You know, as I read this, I just saw this emphasis of, 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 of those that play parts in, in faith formation. From the personal eyes to the groups, the we's. And the old saying is true, right, is, is that it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a church community, a faith community, a massive community to ensure that faith is being passed to the next generation. And, and as I alluded to, there's been these studies that have been released that, that help us understand what we need to do. And, and one of the studies that uh, is called Renegotiating Faith talks about um, the importance of, of retaining young people in their faith. And one of the answers, one of the biggest answers that we can have is having a faith community 
that proactively walks alongside and supports students. You see, the focus of this spiritual community is to help students pay attention to what God is doing in their lives, to respond accordingly uh, by obeying in love. And in a survey about community and faith, one high school student wrote this. My faith community knows where my struggles are. They know where my joys are. They know what I'm good at. They know what I'm terrible at, but they still walk alongside me, encouraging me in the things that I'm good at, and they also rebuke me in the things that I'm sinning at. My, my community pushes me towards righteousness and following Christ more fully, and they are a friend and a person that I can trust in the process. And as I thought about this beautiful picture, and I thought about the circle of people that supported me in my crisis of faith, I thought about two very important roles that are involved in discipling young believers. First off, I want to address you as parents. So if you're a parent, put your hand up. I want to see you. If you're a parent, bless you. I'm praying for you. And I want to remind you that you have the most important role in the faith formation of your kids. In all the studies that I've read, every single one of them points to this massive influential role that you as parents have in your kid's life. It was Dr. Christian Smith from the University of Notre Dame who said that most teenagers and their parents may not realize it, but a lot of research in the sociology of religion says that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious beliefs is the religious lives modeled to them by their parents. You see, your role as a parent is not just to be the initial launch pad for your kid's spiritual journey, but you are to continue to play a vital role in shaping your kids as an ongoing champion, guide, and model. And as we look at our text this morning, we are being reminded uh, that the people of God uh, had, a, or that God had established a testimony in Jacob and had appointed this law in Israel, which he commanded fathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them. You see, friends, God did this because he wants his people to be set apart from surrounding nations for the worship of God, and he wants them to flourish. And it's in Deuteronomy 6 where parents are given the highest and holy calling of sharing that testimony and law with their children. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Write these commandments that I have given today or given you today on your hearts. Get them inside of you and then get them inside your children. Talk about them wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the street. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to when you fall in, in bed at night. Tie them on your hands and your foreheads as a reminder. Inscribe them on the doorpost of your homes and on your city gate. You know, as I research how much influence a parent has, did you know you as a parent have roughly 3,000 hours per year to influence your kids in what matters most? So your job right now, regardless of where you are in the parenting journey, regardless if your kids have walked away from faith or not, is to still continue being an influence in your kids' lives where you model Jesus and you show him working in and through you. Listen, today, I, I want to simply remind you as parents that your role matters, and it still matters. Sometimes it feels like what you're teaching your kids falls on deaf ears, but it matters. How you live that out matters. What you talk about matters. What you prioritize as a family matters and will help shape your kids towards self, self-reliance or to Jesus. 
right? And I want to remind you, because sometimes we feel hopeless in this, right? Our kids have walked away from faith. Their lives are messy. But I want to remind you of this, is that God's not done with your kid yet. And he's not done with you yet. And he wants to use you to shape and influence your kids towards Christ. You see, the best way that we influence our kids is by being influenced by God ourselves, Gary Thomas said that when we model compassion, uh, kindness, forgiveness, humility, and our need for grace, those things are then what make Christianity inviting and welcoming to our kids. It's not like programming computers where you put in the right figures and you get the right results. In general, the most influential thing that we can do is to be authentic believers who understand grace, who love God, who revere his word, and surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's what you as parents need to do. Secondly, I want to address the role of mentors in a teenager's life. And it's in Psalms 145, verse 5, where it says that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You see, the second most important role in every kid's life is a caring adult who makes themselves available to a young person. A mentor is someone who gives up their time to care for the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of students. And, and every study indicates that faith is formed through trusted relationship. Students need their parents to help form and lead them in faith, but they also need other caring adults who make themselves available as they share their own experiences and struggles and commitment to faith. And I want you for a moment to think about your own faith journey growing up. Who, who were the people who most influenced you in your spiritual walk? Well, I bet you a million dollars, which I don't have. So if I get it wrong, I got nothing for you. Um, is this, is that, that your faith was influenced or it was impacted because someone older than you was an, a, an influence in your life. Someone older than you made time for you and noticed you and connected with you. And, and when you were struggling, they prayed with you and they sent you scripture and they loved you and they cried with you. That, I, I can guarantee like all of us have been impacted by someone older than us. You see, every adult in this church has an important role in the family of God. And your job is to notice and to love and to mentor those younger than you. You see, mentors come in all shapes and sizes and commitments. They're coaches and youth workers and Sunday school teachers. They're greeters at the door who notice and welcome young people. When I was a kid at Central, there was this guy named Abe Esau who made it his personal goal every Sunday morning to shake the hands of every single teenager in the church because he wanted them to know this one truth, that they were noticed in the, in the body of Christ, that they had a part to play. And I remember every Sunday morning shaking his hand, and, and his hand was like a baseball glove. And, you know, my hand would just fit in it. It would just encompass the whole thing. And he'd shake and say, hey, I'm so glad that you're at church today. I hope you know that I've been praying for you and I love you. And, I mean, that was impactful for me. Right? That was impactful. Every kid is longing for a caring adult who will be intentional in their lives. Every kid is longing for that. About a year ago, I, I had some of our, our recent grads reach out to me, and they explained that they were starting to date, and, 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 you know, they had been dating for a little bit, and they were like, you know, maybe we should get married, and they're like, is there a mentor in the church who can walk with us? And so I phoned my friends Vic and Nelly up, and, and I asked them if they'd be interested in meeting with Luke and Cassia, and this is what they wrote back. 
They said, hey, John, we'd love to meet with and mentor Luke and Cassia. We do not feel qualified, and we do wonder what we as old people have to offer. But we can point them to Jesus and show how he's been our rock through the years. Love, Vic and Nellie. And it was special a few weeks ago. Vic and Nellie actually celebrated with Luke and Cassia at their wedding. And, and Vic and Nellie's influence extends through Luke and Cassia as Luke and Cassia have mentored and cared for close to two dozen high school students themselves. It's an amazing thing. But what I love about, about Vic and Nellie is I use this as an illustration, and they sent me an email uh, on, on, on Sunday a few weeks ago. And they said, hey, why did you give us the accolade? We didn't do much. I said, but that's the thing, right? Mentors come in all shapes and sizes and commitments. Your role was radical in those two's lives, right? Even if it was just a few meetings where you connected and prayed and shared stories, that mattered. You see, friends, the focus of mentoring is to help young people pay attention to what God is doing in their lives and to respond to him. It's, it's not directing others in the sense of imposing an agenda on them or telling them what to do, rather... It is meant to be a friendship where you listen and you listen deeply and you focus on what God is doing and you help a student discern God's agenda. And, and here's the encouragement for the church that can be found in re renegotiating faith, which is the study. It said that churches that fully retain their young people tend to invest in religious programs that are focused around mentorship. Right? There's, there's so much importance when a caring adult just invests their lives in a younger person. And Scott Wilclair, in, in a book called The Orphan Generation, said, in Christ, we are all an essential part of an intentional uh, adoptive community that passes its heritage through the generations. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we function as the incarnation of Jesus Christ to one another. So when you mentor a kid, and when you notice a kid, and when you shake a kid's hand, and you say, I'm so glad you're at church, what a student is actually seeing isn't just you, they're seeing Jesus. So the more we do that, the more our kids get this picture of who Jesus is, and the love that he has for them, and the hope that he has for them. You see, investing in a young person's life is not a waste of time. It is the most formative thing that you can do to help pass on faith. Lastly, our, our text this morning is reminding us that passing on faith requires intentionality and it requires a shift of priorities. Listen, I believe that all of us here, regardless if we're parents or if we're not, we long to see the next generation of followers of Christ embrace their faith as they live out their lives in dependency on Jesus. And so the question is, how do we do this the most effective way? As I thought about our passage, I was struck with this, this intentionality that it takes to pass on faith to the next generation. Our, our text tells us that it requires aspects of teaching and listening and sharing stories and reflecting on our past and our traditions. It includes sharing our awe of God, learning from our mistakes, and remembering the things he's done and the promises that he's made. You see, I believe that this morning, one of the reasons why young people are walking away from the church is because we haven't been as intentional as we can. I mean, we've been great at creating program, but sometimes it's really easy for young people to get lost on a Sunday morning or to get lost in the church. And if there's anything that I've learned in my 18 years of youth ministry and from our passage today is that no one accidentally creates a disciple. Discipleship is this intentional pursuit. It is active and involved. It doesn't shy away from the mess of sin, and it requires effort and energy. You see, as disciple makers, we can't idly sit by because too much is at stake. 
This generation and those to come after them need you and I to respond, to be as intentional as we can, to be on the mission of God as we instruct and prepare and have conversations with our kids about what it means to live out faith in a world that's opposed to Christianity. And together, as parents and mentors and ministries, we must remember the spiritual forces that are at work in this world. It is either God's plan for love and salvation or Satan's desire for evil and death. And what we need to know, church, is that we are a part of this plan of of love and salvation. We are a part of that. We are God's, like, this is God's plan. It's the church to pass on the love, to share about the gospel, to teach about salvation, to talk about repentance of sin, to talk about hope and trust in a world that seems so hopeless. You see, we have a job to share the good news of the gospel to those who are younger than us, and we need to remember this. And for some of us, we need to reevaluate our priorities a few years ago, I had, I had a guy named Glenn come up to me, and it was a Sunday morning, and, and Glenn was walking with crutches and had a neck brace on, and, and he had tears welling up in his eyes, and he's sobbing in the foyer. And so I go, Glenn, what's going on? He goes, I need to tell you a story, and I need to get involved in youth ministry. And so Glenn tells me the story, that when he was a young adult himself, he was in a car accident And he ended up breaking his neck. And while laying in a hospital bed, thinking that maybe he was going to be paralyzed for the rest of his life, Glenn made this this kind of the the Hail Mary to God, right? God, if you save me, if if I live from this, if I recover from this, I'm going to invest in the lives of young people. Well, Glenn was eventually released from the hospital, and, and, um, and he was healed, but, but the opportunity never arose for him to serve and to lead young people. Glenn got older. He started a career. He got married. He had a family. And about eight or nine years ago, this is when I met Glenn, Glenn was out dirt biking in his backyard, and he wiped out on his motorcycle, and he broke his neck for the second time. And as he's lying in the dirt, he remembers this promise to God that one day he would work with young people and he felt this conviction that he had done nothing. And so that's when Glenn came up to me with crutches and a neck brace. And eventually, you know, he was healed. Crutches gone, neck brace gone. And we got Glenn plugged into our youth group. And he started serving at youth, leading this small group with a bunch of kids who had had issues with their dads. Their dads were absent and, and so Glenn became this spiritual father to these guys. And, and I don't know if God has a sense of humor, but about three years ago, Glenn was shoveling the snow at his house, and he slipped on some ice, and he broke his neck for the third time. And so I decided to go visit my friend Glenn, and I brought him coffee, and I just like, just really sarcastically was like, hey, Glenn, what's God teaching you this time? And the first thing he said was, ice is slippery. <laughs> and secondly with tears in his eyes, streaming down his cheeks, he said, John, I have only so many Wednesdays and weekends left in my life. I have to make them count. You see, that is a guy who understands the need to shift priorities because this is about urgency, right? That urgency led to the shift of priorities. Listen, folks, Scripture tells us that Jesus went to a great length to reach the one sheep who was lost. 
And I wonder, as I've thought about this passage, I've thought about all this research that I had to do for my master's, and, and I just, I, I thought to myself, what great length do we have to go to as a faith community to reach the 35 million young people who are projected to leave the, the faith before 2050? And I believe, church, that God is going to use our efforts as we depend on him as we embrace this role of passing on faith, as we relook and rediscover what our programs are and how we mentor kids and all of that, I believe God's going to bless that and do something with that. And that number will be lower, I hope, and I pray that the Spirit of God would move through our church and that, you know, the, the kids that we have in our church would stay in the church. And what we have to remember is that God has called the church to a time such as this with a mission such as this, to reach people with the good news of the gospel and to lead them to be authentic followers of Jesus. So here's some things that I want to encourage you with as, as you consider what it means to shift priorities. The first thing I want to just say is, is be a people of prayer. I want to encourage you to pray for, for kids and to pray for the teens and the young adults of our church. We must remember that prayer is the most powerful tool and instrument in a changed life. And our burden ought to be to pray for those without Jesus. Pray that God would open their eyes and their hearts, that they would turn from darkness into light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they would receive forgiveness of sins and and place among those who are sanctified by faith, that they would have hope in that as well. Secondly, I want to encourage you and stress the importance that we all have as a community, as parents, as mentoring adults, to model an act of faith for young people. Kids today need to see caring adults take their faith seriously and live it out. We must remember that it is one thing to say we love Jesus and another to authentically live that love out. And a lived out faith teaches our kids our priorities, our dependency and commitment to a lifelong faith in Jesus. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to re-engage with the church on a deeper level. All the studies that I have read indicate that people are going to church less, and we must remember that that church is is more more than just entertainment or, or community. It is also a primary place for teaching and accountability and relationships. And attending church isn't some mildly unimportant activity that does some good, if you happen to find room in your busy schedule. Rather, it is a keystone habit, meaning it is one of those habits that strengthens the rest of the Christian habits combined. And so when you eliminate faithful participation in a church, you lessen your resolve about your walk with Jesus. And, and I just wonder if, if, you know, the stats say that, that people attend church once a month. But I wonder what we're teaching our kids when church becomes secondary in our lives. And I know that's convicting, and I know that, you know, there's lots of busy things like holidays are great and sports are really good, but I, I just wonder if maybe part of the reason why kids are leaving is because we've said, you know, church is secondary to things. I want to encourage you, fourthly, to, to d- develop deep relationships. And I don't need to say this again. You've heard me say it. But just, just notice students. Give a kid a high five. Pray with them. Find opportunities on Sunday mornings to, to get to know students and to create a community where they have a, f- a friend in you, a family in you, a, a spiritual coach in you. And lastly, I want to encourage you to find an area to serve that involves working with the next gen, next generation. See, one of the things that's really kind of amazing about our church is that God has, has some, for some reason, blessed this place with a huge amount of young people. There was a time in our church when we had like five kids, five kids, 
And our church prayed for more kids. And then it was like, wow, we got lots of kids. <laughs> That's exciting. But listen, we need help to disciple the next generation because I, like, I, I'm, I'm almost a 40-year-old youth pastor, which is like pretty rare in youth pastors. Um, I can't do it on my own. My team can't do it on their own. We, we need to actually like add to our team. We've got kids ministry to think about. We've got young adults to think about. And so there is, there's some opportunities for you as a church to lean in. If you want to talk and be a part of youth ministry or, or like helping run Bible studies up here on Sunday mornings, come talk to me after the service. I would love your help because I can't be everywhere, right? But we have the church. We have mentors here. We have parents here. It's an amazing thing. And so visit our table, learn what it means to be a youth leader. There's, there's kids camp that are happening this summer. I, I, my hope and my prayer is that they have more volunteers than they need because there's, a, there, I mean, every camp is full from what I'm aware of. We need people to barbecue, to lead groups, to play soccer, to do setup. There's lots of opportunities. So talk to the kidsmen team as well. And um, yeah, I just want to encourage you, lean in. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I've done enough rambling for the morning. Um, but I want to end by saying how important this moment is for the church. And it's shocking to hear numbers like 35 million are going to walk away, but we need to remember one thing, and, and I want to make sure that I highlight this, is that we remember the sovereignty of God. We remember the sovereignty of God because he is still in control, and he's still the one who saves. And it's in, in Luke 19, verse 10, where, where Jesus, when describing his purpose, he chose words with great victory for our lives and for our kids. And he said this, he said, for the son of man has come to save that which is lost. Note the choice of words, to save that which is lost. Jesus is the good shepherd. He, he voluntary, uh, voluntarily left his throne in heaven. He took human form to reach those far from him. And, and, and Jesus loves you and he, he loves every lost soul. And he loves every kid who's wandering away and questioning and doubting and, and deconstructing. And, and he he loves you so much that he sacrificed his, his life on the cross for you. And as members of the church, we, we need to have that heart for the lost as well, for the lost generation. We too need to love others so much that no sacrifice is too great to see sinners saved. So I want to pray, and then I want to worship with you. Lord God, we come before you with thankfulness for the testimony and the law that you've given us. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the God who saves and that no one is too far from your grace. And so I pray that you would use the church in a huge way, that you would use the parents that sit here in a huge way to pass on faith. God, I pray that, that students and kids would hear the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for this next generation. I pray that, that, that you would grab a hold of their hearts, 